Okay, here we are, David Kellogg. What a pleasure to see you. And especially on such short notice. This was like six hours ago I asked you and you responded. Swiftness. So thanks so much. I have like the best teachers in the world. <laughs> well, you have to get up early for them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is quite early. I'm on my third sip of coffee. Um, but uh, yeah, thanks, thanks so much. And uh, so I was hoping a little bit that we could talk about Vygotsky, mainly from a teaching perspective, um, but also uh, maybe you could talk a bit about pedology versus pedagogy, because I know that's an interest of yours, especially since you're in the midst of a large tra uh, translation project. Yeah. Can you, can you talk just a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, the first thing I want to say is that Vygotsky was very modest when it comes to giving advice to teachers. And in fact, I think a lot of teachers find that frustrating because he won't tell you what to do on Monday. And, <laughs> and you have to figure, figure that out. Uh, so then the question is, why is he so modest? Why doesn't he tell us what we want to know? And when we try to take what he says and turn it into an activity, a leading activity, or a scaffolding, or a zone of proximal development, the experts all come in and tell us we're wrong. <laughs> and the answer to that is exactly your question. What is the difference between pedagogy on the one hand and pedology on the other? And one thing to keep in mind about Vygotsky is that he, he worked in two sciences that are now dead. The first science was defectology, which was the study of how you compensate for a defect, what we would call disabled, disability. But that would horrify him. To be disabled implies that somehow your potential is not there. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what he thought is there. On the other hand, defect describes the kinds of kids he was working with quite well. The people who have very low IQs, uh, very low scores on IQ tests, I should say, uh, and uh, blind children, uh, deaf children, mute children, uh, children who were morally insane, which is how they refer to juvenile delinquents. Wouldn't that be great to refer to <laughs> that's, that's, my, that, that's my new favorite phrase. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't I'm ready, to, yeah, I'm ready to make exactly. a t-shirt tomorrow. So that was the first science. And the second science was, as you say, pedology, which is what it sounds like, not what you, what you get when you Google it, which is the science of soil. <laughs> it sounds like the science of children and that's what it is, but it's the science of children in development. And that means that, it means that children are not miniaturized adults, like they thought in the middle ages, those, you know, those Christ and, and Madonna figures where Christ is basically a shrunken adult. Uh, it's not like that. Uh, and just as the, the child is not a shrunk, a midget adult. You can't say that um, a middle school student is a miniaturized high school student or, or that an elementary school student is a miniaturized middle school student. All of these kids, it's not just that they speak different languages. They don't speak different languages. They speak the same language, sort of. But they have different cultures. They belong to different worlds. And the forms of thinking that we find in them are utterly different. And that, to Vygotsky, suggests 
modesty. It suggests that professors don't tell high school students what high school teachers what to teach, and high school teachers don't tell middle school teachers what to teach, and middle school teachers don't tell elementary school teachers what to teach because they're working in different countries, different realms, different kingdoms. And to understand how you get from one kingdom to another, one realm to another, you need a science. And that science is biology. That's what biology is. Um, before we go on to the next question, I want to give two other reasons why Vygotsky won't tell us what we want to know. Mm. Uh, one is modesty. He doesn't want to tell you what to do. The other one is concreteness, that every teaching situation is quite specific. But the third one is actually, he's more ambitious than that. Mm. <laughs> teaching for the ages in two senses. He's teaching for all the different ages from seven-year-olds to 17-year-olds. But he's also teaching for his own age, the Soviet Union, and our own age, which is, God knows, it's, very, it's a very different place and it's a very different time. And the very fact that you and I are sitting here, Anthony, and talking about this weird guy who died more than 80 years ago, suggests that he must have got something right because he was teaching for the ages and here we are. Mm. Next yeah, and, and, and uh, interest, interest in Vygotsky has brought me in contact, and I'm sure not just me, in contact with people whose paths I otherwise probably would never cross. So, oh, well, so that's been very cool. That would have been a dream. It's been great to, to get to know you. And I'm sure he's, I'm sure Vygotsky's glad to, <laughs> glad to know that that's part of his legacy, that he's actually uh, creating conversations between people who probably wouldn't be conversing. So that's an interesting little side effect. Um, is there anything in your recent translation of his pedagogical works that, uh, uh, I don't know, that you'd just like to share because it's, it was particularly surprising or maybe interesting or additive in some way, especially to the teaching concept? Yeah, the Jews live on in their written word. <laughs> um, it, it's a rule in Judaism that you bury books and you don't burn them. Uh, and I think that what Vygotsky would have said is that uh, he's checking out of here and he's not going to survive, but that um, when, in terms of cultural historical theory, a man's death is the moment when their thinking and their oral speech has to be replaced with their written speech. And so Vygotsky lives in his pedology writings. And uh, we're, Nikolai and I are bringing out the second volume of the series. And this is an exclusive to Anthony Barra. Uh, we now have contracts for the whole of the pedology of the adolescent. I can't tell you what a scoop this is. I mean, the pedology of the adolescent is the longest single thing Vygotsky ever wrote. You know, chapter 10, which he wrote because he was heartbroken over the suicide of his favorite student, Safra. Mm. Uh, it's it goes on and on and on. Just to give you a hint, chapter five in Thinking in Speech is about half. That's mm. only half. There's another <laughs> half of it. And that's just one chapter. Yeah. And there are 16. 16. I mean, it's true. Some of them are just a page or two. But, but it is the longest single sustained thing Vygotsky published in his lifetime. And yet, it's not even in print in Russia. I don't know why. I think, you know, if you like Thinking in Speech, there's no way you can't like chapter 10 of Pedology uh, of the Adolescent. So, so very briefly, very briefly, what, what is that process like? Uh, what text are you actually working with? 
We're working with a correspondence course that Vygotsky wrote for teachers all over the Soviet Union. Uh, so, you know, Irkutsk and uh, Sakhalin and uh, places in Central Asia and Kazakhstan. Uh, and these are people who pay one ruble a month. Your salary is about 300 rubles. Mm. And then they get these massive lessons from Vygotsky with five homework assignments. You do the homework assignment, you send it back to Moscow, and you get your, um, your critical remarks in two, three weeks' time, depending on the mail. Mm -hmm. And that's how, that's how village school, school teachers qualified in the 1930s. And Vygotsky was a correspondence teacher. So we've got the correspondence course. Vandeveer is a little, and Balsener are a little bit kind of, why is he sending out this cutting-edge stuff? To village school teachers all over the Soviet Union because it is cutting edge stuff. I mean, mm. everything's there, and, and they have a kind of well, maybe he couldn't publish any other way, but he could publish. He was publishing 1930, 1931, mm. and so I think he just loved teachers and wanted to give him. You know, like you and me, you walk into a classroom, you give the best class you possibly can, and I think that's what Vygotsky did, mm. and we've got it. <laughs> Very cool. Including the homework assignments. I've been doing homework. <laughs> you're gonna have to you're gonna have to send me a homework assignment on the sly. I'll keep it private. One of them's coming out in MCA. Actually. Okay. It, it's it's my favorite homework assignment because it's sex education. <laughs> so, he's he's very interested in sex education. Okay. And, and for for good reasons that every middle school teacher has to know. You know, middle school teachers are dealing with kids who are going through a phase, as they say. And, and also, key concept of pedagogy the adolescent is you don't get concepts unless you get, you have interests. And interests have to be defined, not in the usual way of is it fun or is it exciting, but is it sustainable? Very important. Mm. Also, um, is it objective? Objective, not just subjective, not just like. And, and I'm, I'm very sorry. When you say it, what are you referring to? When you say is it sustainable? Is it subjective? Interests. Oh, okay, Interests. got it. And I'm a little worried about our last book because we translated it "hunmi" in Korean, which means, which means something like fun. And you know, I'm not against fun. Fun is fun, <laughs> but uh, but interests in um, in Russian and in English has a you know, like bank interests, like uh, it is in your interests to uh, pass the college entrance examination and go to a good school and get a job. And it has that other dimension as well, something objective. And the question is, how do you turn a subjective interest into an objective one? And how do you make interests, not just passions, but also mm -hmm. plans for a profession, for a persona, and ultimately for a partner, because some um, Sex education is ultimately about that. And these mm -hmm. are decisions that certainly imbricate interest and certainly also form concepts. One of the most important concepts being, who am I? Mm. What kind of people do I dig? And, and those are all questions that your students, my students, they're still thinking about. Mm. So, I, I did want to ask you, I did want to ask you about your students, but uh, like more, more specifically, about yourself as a teacher, but even more broadly than that, 
how would how do you define yourself in terms of the various roles that you play? And I know you're a researcher. I know you're a translator. I know you. I don't know the extent to which you teach. Um, I know you are a traveler. I, I know you have many roles. And uh, well, I'm not. So, a so it's, it's my second my second part question. My second part is uh, so how do you define yourself in terms of the various roles that you play? Well, including your role in the Vygotsky sphere. This is a question okay. I've been asking lately. Okay, well, I think it'd be easier if you go first, and then I'll do everything you do, uh, only with myself. So you're- Got it. Yeah, that makes grade, sense. You're an eighth grade teacher, yeah? Yeah, I currently teach eighth grade. That's mm -hmm. called language arts here, but basically it's eighth grade English. I'm a former high school English teacher. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I spent about 10 years running a restaurant in the interim in between those two jobs. Yeah, I did some, I did some graduate school, but didn't finish. Um, uh, I studied Vygotsky a little bit in graduate school. That's where I first read Thinking and Speech with my newborn daughter on my lap. That was, <laughs> that, was a, that was an attention challenge if there ever was one. Oh no, same topic. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was amazing. Yes. But, but that was a hard book to get through for the first time. Yeah. Yeah, so that's pretty much my background. Uh, and You're mostly now, nowadays, I'm just a, a husband and a father more than anything else. Which puts you streets ahead of me. Well, not the husband part. I'm, I'm a husband's brother. Uh, but it puts you streets ahead of me. So um, I dropped out of University of Chicago in 1978. And as you say, I became a bit of a backpacker. But I didn't travel. I, I eventually settled in China in 1984 and lived there for 12 years. Uh, and in China, it, at the time, there weren't very many foreigners. And so English teaching was very much in demand. So like you, I became an English teacher. But mostly it was at the Academy of Sciences, which is every professor's wet dream. That's a university without any students. You just do nothing but research. Mm -hmm. And I had to teach people who were going abroad. Um, I worked in a cancer hospital, and then I worked in the Academy of Sciences, and then I worked at universities in China. And then I got kicked out of China. That was 1989, uh, for the reasons you can guess, and uh, went back to China in 1991, got married, uh, left China so my wife could do, go to graduate school. She wanted to go to graduate school in England, so we went to England and settled in England for a while. And then um, uh, we had some student debt to pay, which you probably know about. <laughs> so I came to Korea for the same reason everybody else comes to Korea, which is to make money. But um, it's a, one of the points about interests is that likes and wants in very young children change into something else by the time you get to be an adolescent. And so the reasons you have for starting an activity are very rarely the reasons that you have for keep going keeping going and we just liked it here it was mm. china but it was not china uh it was chinese in culture but not chinese in other ways and there was a kind of a um there was a kind of a sense in which we were both kind of part of the society but not part of the society so we settled here and i've lived here now 22 years. So I don't consider myself a traveler anymore. I consider myself a permanent resident of South Korea. Um, I work in a university. I teach teachers. Um, I did work for the government for 
many years, uh, including designing textbooks. And I also spent time in middle schools, uh, teaching in middle school. I wasn't very good. I wasn't as good as you, Anthony, <laughs> because of the bouncing ball syndrome, because I do tend to uh, rattle on a bit, and I do tend to ask children to do things that they can't do. <laughs> mm. And so I, I'm a little more comfortable teaching teachers, which is terrible, but that's the way it is. <laughs> oh, and I don't have any children. I don't have any children. So oh, okay. you're ahead of me that way, too, in practical pedology, we will call it. <laughs> I, I imagine when you were trying to ask children or get kids to do more than they were capable of, that, I imagine that would work out occasionally, no? Um, except that, see, I think one of the reasons why we need pedology, we need to study pedology, is that the idea that if you demonstrate a task or you demonstrate an activity and you do it with the child, lo and behold, tomorrow they can do it all by themselves, well, that shows that it wasn't the ZPD. <laughs> that shows that it was the zone of actual development, because if the child can pick it up in 24 hours, you know, then, then that's the zone of their actual development, and it's not the next zone of development. So then everybody says, well, what is this next zone of development? Where does Vygotsky talk about it? And the answer is the pedology. The pedology, the, the next zones of development are all quite well-defined. Mm. I think that our friends in XMCA, you ask, what am I doing on XMCA? And of course, the answer is this answer you gave. I'm learning, including from people like you, Anthony, people who, who have daughters and, and teach real children and, and not, uh, not undergraduates. Mm -hmm. and, and that, I think, is just as important a part of XMCA as learning from people like Mike and Andy. And uh, I think all of that is part of the function of XMCA. That's what it's doing there. But anyway, I was going to say that um, one of the things I'm doing on XMCA is, uh, you know, besides talking to people like you, is learning about what real children are like and and what the people who really who really interact with real children are like and what they're doing. Let's be. <laughs> I, I posed a question uh, probably a couple weeks ago, and I was hoping we could talk a little bit about your response. So if you don't mind, I'm going to read my, part of my question again, okay. uh, just to sort of refresh your memory and see if you remember this one. Mm -hmm. Okay, so and this was, a, this was coming from a personal place too. So the question was, if a child, say age 10, uh, appears to have an underdeveloped memory, potentially from a disruption in the child's process of development of the higher psychological function of memory, possibly. What are some suggestions for A, developing this function in non-academic contexts in order to B, increase the likelihood of transfer into academic contexts? And one premise behind this question was from a conversation with Nikolai where he pointed out that uh, if somebody was struggling with something, don't necessarily assume that that uh, that it's the it's their interaction with the task necessarily. It might be it might be that something was possibly interrupted in in, in its development in some way, and and uh, 
that is sort of uh, recoverable or, or rebuildable in some way, especially especially if if you can do it in like a game-like way in other contexts, which makes it more likely to transfer into maybe school-based context. So sorry if that was a little bit of a word salad, but you probably remember the gist of the question. Um, I do, and and I sense a trap. I sense that I'm, okay. going, to, <laughs> I'm going to be falling into exactly what I suggested Vygotsky was reluctant to do, and I'm reluctant mm -hmm. to do, that I'm going to be issuing activities and writing prescriptions and so on. Uh, and, and I'm going to avoid that trap in the following way. I said that on next MCA, um, I was mostly learning from people like you. Um, but why is that? Well, part of it is because people on XMCA tend to be followers of chat, cultural historical activity theory. And activity theory is not what I do. I, I do the cultural historical part. I'm very interested in it. Um, by the way, it makes me somewhat conservative in a pedagogical sense. Uh, not a political sense, that's another sense, <laughs> but in a pedagogical sense, I tend to believe not in progressive teaching, but in a kind of teaching which you would probably call Asian, but I would call um, pedagogically informed. And, and part of pedology is recognizing that when things have been done in classrooms for hundreds of years or even thousands of years, there's probably a very good reason. And so, uh, and if children have been playing games for thousands of years, there's probably a very good reason. And if the whole idea of stratifying children into age groups and putting them in classrooms is fairly recent, which it is, um, there's probably a good reason for that too. And so you can see that this is not progressive teaching as we know it. It's, um, I wouldn't, wouldn't call it reactionary teaching either, but it's teaching that very much respects culture and history uh, and and also respects teachers. So I'd say what I'm doing on XMCA is uh, learning from teachers like yourself, uh, defending a view that is not activity theory, but which is very language-based because language is the central element of culture and history. And when you say to me a developed memory, I say to you, a semanticized memory, because it seems to me that what the 10-year-old needs to do more than anything else in order to stay alive in a noisy language-using society is to replace a memory which is based on imagery and on experience, first-hand experience, with a memory that is based on word meanings. That's not activity, that's language. That's what you and I do as, as language teachers. And so we, th that's partly my role as an outsider on XMCA, somebody who likes the cultural historical part of it and doesn't like the activity part of it. For that reason, I'm going to say that the forms we're really looking for are not activities. They're not even games, although kids like games. Um, kids like games, but a lot of games um, tend to be the last period of development and not the next period of development. I, I, 
I see this every time I go drink with my students. They play drinking games, which are essentially juvenile. You know, they're, they're really, um, well, Roger Calois, who was this French sociologist, divided games into four different categories. He said there's sort of, let's compete, <laughs> which he called agonistic games. Mm. And then there's, um, let's pretend, which he called mimetic games, sort of things like opera and, you know, role play and stuff like that. Mm. And then there are games of dizziness. So drinking, for example, is a game of dizziness and skiing too, by the way, and, and going on a Ferris wheel or a merry-go-round or, or the thing that kids do to, to get dizzy and pass out. Uh, it's something to do with our like of mind-altering drugs. Um, you know, children, we don't want children to do that, but it's okay if they get on a merry-go-round. <laughs> and, and then the last one is chance, luck, gambling. And Calois tries to put these in a kind of a, a, a pedagogical order, trying to say that some games are more advanced, like agonistic games are more advanced because they bring you to the stock market and to the world of business. And, you know, games where you're just getting lucky are not advanced. And that's nonsense. That's all rubbish. Uh, that, and yet um, there is something rather difficult to control about games. I'm not arguing against games. I'm, I think games are okay. But I think in order to understand how you get a child into the semantic memory, you have to dig down into the game and think about the word meanings that stand behind the game. Obviously, you're going to get one kind of word meaning in a wrestling match, which is agonistic. And you're going to get different word meanings in Italian opera, where people are, you're Italian, you know about opera. Mm -hmm you know, where people are, are pretending that this world is full of mysterious beings who sing instead of talking to each other, in Italian no less. Uh, and and uh, you're going to get a very different game in games of luck and chance, and you're going to get very different kinds of word meanings in games of luck and chance, and different ones, very little word meaning, in games of dizziness and in sports like skiing. So you can see that if you dig down into the game and you ask yourself, what kinds of semantic memories are we building? You get a very different answer than the one Nikolai gave you. Instead of sort of a hierarchy of games, I'm not sure if that's what Nikolai had in mind, it's what Calois had in mind. Uh, okay. uh, but instead of a hierarchy of activities, leading activities, which is how activity theorists think about it, not all activity theorists, but certainly Elkonen and um, uh, Zaporzhets, uh, these are people who did believe in leading activities instead of pedagogical periods. If you believe in pedagogical periods, and I do, it's all about language. Because when in the pedology writing, Vygotsky asks himself, okay, we got this social situation of development, which is a relationship between the child and the environment in which both are represented. Uh, that's the social situation of development. But what is the interface? How, does, how do you get from A to B? How do you get from child to environment, from environment to child? In the crisis, why does the center of gravity seem to sort of plummet to the child's end so that a lot of the teaching methods that we call progressive, that you and I are probably equally frustrated with and irritated by and even annoyed with, um, these progressive, child-centered, um, slightly romantic methods of teaching 
where the child is expected to suck all the meaning out of his or her thumb or just have a good time in class. These kinds of progressive technologies are probably good for the crisis because during the crisis, the child is in command. It doesn't matter if you think you're in command. The child is basically wants to be the source of development, him or herself. And so in, in periods of crisis, I think progressive, what we call progressive teaching, child-centered teaching is okay. But most of life, thank God, is not a crisis. Most of life is a stable period where actually the environment and not the child is the ultimate source of development. So we have to think about what are the word meanings that are available in the environment and how do those word meanings get from B to A? How do they get from the outer end of the social situation of development to become internalized by the child? And so in my response to you on XMCA, I did give you, I fell into the trap <laughs> and I gave you um, a bunch of activities which are actually from a textbook that I wrote. And before, and before, you, before you do, I'm just gonna make one little clarification that I think I left out. Um, yeah. So another, another thing my question was rooted in was um, Nikolai talked a bit about Vygotsky's law of four stages mm -hmm. and where, where basically uh, I think, each, I think he, each higher mental function goes through four stages of development natural, naive, external signs and operations, and then internal signs and operations. Mm. And, and that sometimes there's a, a, a problem of sorts moving from one stage to the next. Mm. And that might be where development gets uh, stunted in some way. So I, I think that was the, that was also behind my question. Um, and that might have been part of what you were replying to. But, but please, please proceed. Um. Tell you what, can you give me command of the screen? Do I have command of the screen? Can I share the yeah. screen? Yeah, and I'm gonna pause just one second and then I'm gonna give you that. Okay, yeah, sorry for that break. Okay, Nikolai's right. It's dangerous to disagree with Nikolai. He knows his stuff. Um, but let me just add a few things to it. First of all, Vygotsky gets the first three stages. That is to say the stage of um, instinct or unconditional responses, uh, natural. The stage of culture, but primitive culture, sort of conditioned responses, uh, that's the second stage. And the third stage, creativity or intelligence, those three stages come from Karl Bühler. I mean, of course, they're older than Bühler, the, the business of conditioned, unconditioned responses. Bechterev and even older, Bechterev, Pavlov, even older. Um, but so Vygotsky's adding on. The fourth stage, um, which is free will, it's freedom. Um, freedom in the sense of recognition of necessity, because uh, Vygotsky gets his ideas of freedom from Spinoza, and, for, and Spinoza believes that real freedom is recognizing, real freedom is not freedom from death. We all have to die. But it is recognizing the necessity of death and uh, changing what you can about it, which is your own attitude and your own acceptance of it. So uh, that's freedom as far as Spinoza is concerned, and that, that'll do for Vygotsky as well. So we do have these four stages. Question is, what do we do with them? Well, Bueller's ideas about those, uh, those four stages were three stages in Bueller. 
were pretty simple. It was the child is born a natural being with instincts. And so the child in the first year of life, the newborn on Antony's lap, while Antony is reading, thinking speech, is a, a, an instinctive being. And you just nurture the child's instincts. Then the toddler becomes a child who learns speech. And speech, of course, is a, it's a habit. It's a, speech habits are habits. And uh, the child learns these habits we call speech. And when the child goes to school, the child learns how to turn them into creative intelligence. So that each particular stage actually belongs to a particular period of the child's life. Vygotsky says, rubbish. All four stages exist in infancy. And with your daughter on your lap, reading and speech, you can probably see that some of the things the kid's doing are quite instinctive. You don't believe me? You just pick the child up, pretend to drop her, she'll rap like that. Don't do it. <laughs> uh, but that's an instinct. So the Babinski reflex is an instinct. The moral reflex is an instinct. These are all instincts, and the child's born doing them. Um, but the child is also learning in the first year of life to smile when you smile at the child. And that's a conditioned reflex. That's a conditioned response. And infants are creative. Who can say they're not creative? Of course they're creative. They're constantly doing things with little things you give them, sticking them in their mouths, although they've never seen you you know, they've never seen you stick a toy in your mouth. So they're creating. Uh, and they're certainly doing things that are very free-willed, like, you know, keeping you up all night and crying and howling and, and demanding their bottle and that sort of thing. So all four of those things exist right from the get-go. And if you're a teacher, you're wondering, well, okay, but how do I organize so that I certainly some things come to the fore and other things go to the background. A child doesn't remain an instinctive being, you know, in eighth grade. How do I get certain things to the fore? And that's the question we've been thinking about here in Korea. So it used to be, Korea is a great place. I mean, one of the reasons why we settled here is that, you know, every two, every 10 years, they rip the government from power and replace it with another one. That's, that's always nice. I always like that. Uh, with their bare hands, you know, and we've had military dictatorships. We've had really savage elements. Suit your just, temperament. Yes, yes. They <laughs> I, I'm not a burn them down guy, but I do like it. People come down in the streets and start tearing things apart, particularly when you've been living under a brutal military dictatorship. Yeah. Can't and <laughs> one of the one of the uh, con one of the corollaries of that is that just about every six years we have a educational revolution and there's a new curriculum and people got so tired of this that in 2015 right before we ripped down the last government <laughs> uh they they said we're not going to have new curriculums anymore we've had eight of them you know <laughs> we're just going to reform the last one and this is what they did this this thing that you've got i've got here on the screen and i'll explain it to you because i like it i hmm. like it it's a framework we can work with uh it looks a little bit like the Korean, it looks like an egg in a box if you're a, you know, if you're a, uh, an American, but to a Korean, it looks like the Korean flag. You know, it's got the table up in the middle and it's got the, the, um, the trigrams off on the side. And the three, the four groups of trigrams are, you guessed it, they are the four levels of, of behavior that we find in Vygotsky. So I'll start with, um, 
And this is a this is a national curriculum. Yeah, this is the national curriculum. This is the curriculum that stands behind all of our subjects: Korean, so, mathematics, science. English. So this is so this is a national curriculum that uh, that has Vygotsky really literally running right through the center of it. They've never heard of Vygotsky. I'm sure the professors who I'm sure the professors who designed this never heard of Vygotsky. Okay. Um, although we, when it came out, we put it in our Vygotsky books, and we have been promoting a Vygotsky and tack on this, which is why I think um, this way I wanted to show this to you because I think what you're asking for is how do you take a Vygotsky and angle on something that is profoundly non-Vygotsky? <laughs> Because, you know, there aren't any countries in the world, not even Russia, where Vygotsky is genuinely the leading light of the national curriculum. And I think that part of the answer to that is to recognize how not conservative, but how cultural historical the Vygotsky approach is, how it respects traditions that have lasted for hundreds and thousands of years in teaching how in some ways the, Z, the model of the ZPD, the thing that, the, that Vygotsky had in his mind was just a younger brother and an older sister. And the older, the older sibling is the child's next zone of development. That is essentially what Vygotsky had in his mind. It's, it's a conservative idea, uh, conservative in, in the best sense. Let us take what is cultural and historical in our education and let us conserve it. So that, that's really why I wanted to show this to you. So let, let me start here in the lower, um, sorry, the upper right-hand corner, which is It means that we want to teach people to live with others, to live together with others. Now that I suggest to you is an instinct. It's an instinct. As soon as the child's born, the child wants to live with others. The child is sociable by instinct. What more Vygotskyan concept could there be? Well, I'll tell you, <laughs> the lower right-hand corner is which means an enculturated person, the enculturated person. In other words, once the child is born, the child has to master language. Then over here, that's not enough. Once you have the instinct of sociability, the habits of enculturation, you add on the variations, the jazz variations that we call creativity and intelligence. In other words, how do you deal with completely novel situations? Habits are good, but they're lousy when it comes to novel situations. For that, you need creativity. You need intelligence. And that, of course, is the third of Bueller's stages. And then finally, and this is pure Vygotsky, not Bueller, you have which means the self-reliant person, the person who is self-sufficient, self-developed, self-generated and free, because freedom is the pinnacle of all of this. So we set this up, you know, laid out like a flag. I like it because it does suggest that all four of Bueller's categories, sorry, three of Bueller's categories plus Vygotsky's category are there at every point in development. But if you're a teacher, you want to know, where do I begin? And so this pyramid is a little bit more helpful. I know it looks like the Maslow needs hierarchy, but that's part of the point. Um, when people, you, you know what the Maslow needs hierarchy is? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you, you, when, when, when something it catches fire and it's taught in every graduate school in every country in the world, there's gotta be a good reason for it. 
And there is a, I won't say it's a natural order, but I'll call it a cultural historical order. So down here at the bottom, it says sociability, which is an instinct. And that's what leads us to develop the people who live with others. The next one is enculturation, and that is a set of habits, and that's what leads to a cultured individual. And then the next one is creativity, and here Buller stops. But that's not where you want to stop, because the most important decisions that adolescents take, middle school students take, high school students take, and certainly adult young adults take, are decisions that have to do with choice of profession, choice of partner, and choice of, which takes a few years to work out usually, and choices of the persona you are going to be in this, um, this society where you have to get along with others. And of course, in somewhat simpler societies, all of this happened at the same time. You know, you got married when you were nine years old or 10 years old or 11 years old, uh, and then you were out hunting and gathering and you know, all of this happened at the same time. In our society, well, partly because of good diet, <laughs> some forms of maturation, including physical maturation, come earlier and earlier. And um, it's one of the reasons why puberty seems to be falling in South Korea. Uh, and some forms of maturation, especially sociocultural maturation, professional maturation, seems to be getting later and later and later. And middle mm -hmm. school is the product of that. Middle school is in the middle precisely because of this cultural historical chasm that has opened up between uh, the moment the child is physically able to replace his or her food, which is, you know, that's independence if you're an animal, uh, and the moment when the child is socioculturally capable of replacing his or her labor, which among other things involves getting married and having children. So that chasm is the thing that we have to fill. And I think if I were to look at this teleologically, I would say, start at the top and then plan accordingly. But I do have to recognize that, to go back to your 10-year-old who's, who's having trouble with memory, that um, memory, semantic memory, is certainly not an instinct. Uh, I think that Natural memory is an instinct, but semantic memory is difficult because to a certain extent, it depends on creativity. It depends on intelligence. And it's this, you know, if you were Buddha, it would be the very top of the pyramid. If you're Vygotsky, it's right in the middle. So to get back with the, to, the, to Antony's trap, um, I, I laid out a bunch of activities um, you know, having to do with Korean word games like gamaliki. Although, you know, tag is a chain complex. You know, the, the, the loser in one situation is the winner in the other. Um, I laid out a bunch of activities like, um, oh, I can't even remember what they all were. Uh, but I'm going to replace all of them with what I think is the great chain complex of child development and indeed of adult life, and that's conversation. Conversation is a chain complex. You come up with a topic, I develop it, I give it back to you. You develop it, you give it back to me. 
And it's almost like playing tag. It's almost like a game of gamaliki, but it depends on semantic meaning, of course. David, thank you for sharing that. It's, it's very interesting. And uh, I have to say one of, the, one of the main reasons that I wanted to talk to you is that uh, through personal correspondence and also publicly, um, I've, seen you, I've seen you present uh, like teaching suggestions that I thought were more aligned with Vygotsky's actual language, as far as I understand it, than just about anything that I've seen. Like at all, any else, anywhere. So, for example, when I when I gave the question about the developing memory, um, you responded with something that I just thought corresponded so much with with the, uh, the preconceptual stage that uh, I thought that was just really great. So, would you mind recapping that just a bit? Because I think I can get a little more texture through through dialogue. Okay, only if I can criticize it. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, go for it. Okay, uh, what I did was to take uh, the Sakharov block experiments, that is mm -hmm. to say, chapter five of Thinking and Speech, uh, which is chapter 10 of Pathology of the Adolescent. And uh, Sakharov and Vygotsky are doing an experiment, and the experiment has to do with developing concepts, artificial concepts, out of blocks. Uh, and they find that there are five different moves that the child makes um, when the child is finding out the names of the different blocks. And so the first one is not very interesting. It's associative complex. So this goes with that. And, and children do this almost instinctively. They, stuck, they stick things together because they think it goes together. Uh, second one is more interesting, but it's still preschool. It's um, collection complexes, stamp collections, coin collections. But more importantly, Every time you get dressed in the morning, you're putting on a com collection complex. You're putting on things that are functionally linked, but they don't look like each other. Well, I guess one sock looks like another, but a shirt doesn't look like a pair of trousers and trousers don't look like shirts and so on. Or when you sit down to eat breakfast, you got a plate, a knife, a fork, and a spoon. And they look similar on one end, but they're all different on the other. And they're functionally linked to meals. All of that is preschool. And what you're interested in is activities, and again, I think activity is a criticizable word here, that will help the child chain things together semantically. So one And I hope, and, and uh, pardon the interruption, and I, yeah. and I hope at the end of this explanation, we can come back to why activity is a criticizable word. Even though you've already been talking about that, um, I'm still not entirely sure. So hopefully we could circle back to that, but please continue. Yeah. Um, so uh, these are things you can do with kids and I've done them with kids. They work. Uh, they don't work as well in English as they do in Korean. So for example, if you play the game, uh, it's called the word endings game. And uh, there's a version of this in English where you take the last letter because so much of our literacy practices are, are so much of English speaking literacy practices are kind of spelling games. So you go yellow, wife, elephant, tree, you know, you just take the last letter and you make a word with it. But in Korean, it's a lot more fun because um, Korean tends to have two syllable words and you take the whole last syllable. So in English, that would be something like Monday, daytime, timely. And here I've got trouble because although 
Korean syllables tend, because of the Chinese influence, um, Chinese is our language of science concepts in Korea, because of the Chinese influence, they're pretty much symmetrical. You can switch them around and get another word. English is not so easy to do that with, so a lot of words end in L-Y in English, but not too many begin. So I got to timely, and I thought, Ugh. Lytic, which is a word I've only ever seen in Vygotsky. <laughs> <laughs> you had to make that up. No, no, I didn't make it up. I, no, no, I know, it. but you had to stretch for that one. As opposed to, so can you say like leader, L-I-T-E-R, or it has to stick Oh, well, that's there. a good question. That's a good, not if you're teaching spelling. Okay. <laughs> TikTok and so on. Now, you can see that's, that is vocabulary. And, and I would say learning language as a bag of words is, uh, learning a collection complex, you're learning a bunch of words that don't really cohere in any way. They don't really have any semantic link that will help develop the child's semantic memory. So I would say, eh, it's fun, you know, Friday afternoon when the kids are feeling restless, but it's a waste of time, basically. But when you look at conversations, you find something different. Hmm, where were you on Monday? Hmm, Monday? Well, let me think. Um, I was at home. At home? What were you doing at home? And so on. You can see that it is gamaliki. That is to say, the last wording is picked up, usually with an upward intonation, and then commented on, usually with a downward intonation. Conversation. It's a game we never tire of playing. And it is organized according to a chain complex. So the question then becomes, how do you organize conversations so that they yield semantic meanings uh, and not simply memories that are based on images. Uh, how do you organize them so that they will yield the kinds of scientific concepts that we're interested in developing in the child? And the best answer I've found to that is not in chapter five, it's in chapter six, where Vygotsky gets kind of frustrated with the five different stages um, you have to understand there's a lot else that's going on. For one thing, the Soviet Union is undergoing a curriculum reform, and the curriculum reform involves basically doing away with all that progressive, child-centered claptrap, you know, stop the children from playing with toys. Nazi Germany is getting to be a big threat. We got to do what the Nazis do only faster. And so they are, they introduce, at the same time as Stalin is introducing the you know, first five-year plan, which they have to complete in four years, at the same time as declaring war on agriculture and destroying the entire economy. They're reforming education so that children are directly taught concepts. And that will get us right into Vygotsky and what Vygotsky's upset about in that. Mm. Child has to learn none of this play with toys, none of this activities with tools, none of that crap. The Nazis are going to kill us. We have to learn, teach the kids math and science now, yesterday. So they're teaching science concepts, they're teaching uh, mathematics, and they're also teaching nonsense, like um, socialism is possible in the Soviet Union because all of the farms and factories and mines are the property of the workers and peasants, and this allows us to introduce a planned economy. Yes, <laughs> that's taught to second graders. Second graders are learning that. Yeah. You see what Vygotsky's upset about. These kids are mouthing slogans. They're not thinking. They're just speaking. And so Vygotsky says correctly that this is empty verbalism. It's mm -hmm. people 
chanting slogans. And at the same time, Vygotsky does recognize that every crisis is an opportunity. And there are things that are not good about chapter five. One of the obvious ones is that when you're doing the experiment, every time you get a complex, the teacher tells you you're wrong and you start over. But actually in life, what's really happening is none of the old complexes really go away. We generalize them and we get new complexes. So for example, associative complexes are generalized into collections because plates don't look like knives or forks and shirts don't look like trousers, but shirts look like other shirts. They have an associative link and knives look like other knives, forks look like other forks. In other words, the collection complex is a generalization of generalizations. And the chain complex is also a chain of collections of items that could have come from a collection. And chain complexes are, just as the collection complex was corresponded to a particular ordinary activity in daily life, namely getting dressed and having a meal and so on, the chain complex corresponds to conversations. It corresponds to the, the talk that the child is doing. So we're taking a step towards semantic memory. And that brings us to the diffuse complex. Now the diffuse complex is, as Vygotsky just spends about one page on it, he doesn't describe it very much. He, it's very biblical. He says, you know, that Abraham was told by God that the land of Israel would belong to him and to his seed and to his seed seed and to his seed 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 unto the infinite generations until they are as numerous as the sands on the seashore, you know, and the stars in the sky. I will multiply your people so that you fill the world. And uh, Vygotsky's point is this is absurd, <laughs> that anytime you have a generalization of meaning, it gets to the point where it's useless. <laughs> what will I do? What would you do, Antony, with as many children as there are sands, grains of sand on the beach or stars in the sky? <sighs> so, the diffuse complex has to be reined in, it has to be limited, it has to be negated in some way. And that's the pseudo-concept. The pseudo-concept is the reining in of the, of the child's overgeneralizations, uh, using adult word meaning. But the child doesn't know why you have to stop generalization at that point. It's not the child's decision, it's that the adult says, no, 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 Cats are cats and dogs are dogs and lions are something in between. The child is simply learning this from adult speech. And that brings us to free will. That brings us to the point where the true concept has to be formed in one way and one way only. The child has to be able to delimit his or her own generalization, his or her own abstraction. And then the concrete concept comes into being. So I think the activities that I gave you, ah, which didn't stop there. I mean, I, I talked a lot about activities for diffuse complexes where you could do a family tree going back through your mother's line, not through your father's line. <laughs> I bet you can't do that. Well, in Korea, it's pretty hard to do. Um, I talked about how pseudo concepts um, can get deconstructed. Actually, Piaget has a wonderful passage where 
he complains about eight-year-olds who ask why all the time. So we have to have dinner. Why? Because we're hungry. Why are we hungry? Because we need food. Why do we need food? Because we burn calories. Why do we burn calories? And Piaget gets really annoyed with this. He calls it romancing. It's just something the child is doing to irritate you. I think Vygotsky would be quite interested in this. I think, I know he's interested in it. He's interested in the idea that there are proximal causes, there are distant causes. There are proximal consequences and there are very distant consequences. But that chain complex is still there. And so to, to reject one activity and to wipe it off the map, Vygotsky himself says, that was our mistake. We shouldn't have done that. That was the wrong thing to do. And you notice chapter six, although it's weird because Chapter five is supposedly about the adolescent. Chapter six is about elementary school kids. It's like we're going backwards. But mm. chapter six is about true concepts. And chapter five is all about pre-concepts. It doesn't make logical sense. And yet it does make sense. It makes sense because Vygotsky criticized chapter five. And yet he was not willing to remove it. He left it there. He left it there because you criticize, when you criticize something, when you sublate it, you set it aside, you preserve it, and you build on it. And when I read chapter six, and certainly when I read uh, Vygotsky's last lectures on the school child, I can see that chapter five is not negated. It is a source of activities. That's its weakness as well as its strength. Its weakness is that it's not language. And Vygotsky tells us that, you know, the blocks are not language, uh, the words are made up words. Uh, and Vygotsky tells us that if you want to look for the next zone of development, the zone of proximal development, the place you look is not the environment and not the child himself, but the place where the two interface, and that's language. Language is the way in which memory, which was based on perception, experience, and internalizations of perception and experience, suddenly becomes semanticized. And so your real question about the 10-year-old is, how do we build semantic memory? How do we build semantic memory? Can you, can you define semantic memory in simple terms? Yeah, semantic memory is memory of word meanings where instead of remembering grandma in terms of the way her soap smelled, the mm -hmm. way, you know, the wrinkles on her face moved when she laughed, and uh, the way in which she spanked you when you were naughty, you understand that everybody has a grandma and many grandmas don't smell of soap and that it's an, actually an abstract relationship of which your grandma is one particular kind. Mm -hmm. It's a word meaning. And it's an abstract relationship. And it's only from that abstract relationship, which is in turn a combination of a huge quantity of concrete relationships that the child is able to come to semantic meaning. And that's true of all vocabulary, but it's particularly true of the higher concepts that we're interested in. You know, someday your daughter will be a grandma. And at that point, the real concrete meaning of the word grandma will 
will take on its full semantic meaning. So I don't think semantic meaning is a pale copy of living experience. I think semantic meaning includes more potential and more concrete meaning than a particular individual experience can. That's our task, to build semantic meanings in the child. Nikolai doesn't like this. He, he thinks it's a linguist point of view. He's right, it's a linguist point of view. Uh, and actually my, my friends in Switzerland, uh, who are my closest collaborators outside XMCA, uh, they prefer semiological because they recognize that there are other symbols besides words. But you, Anthony, and I, we are language teachers. Language is really at the center of what we do. And so I think semantic meaning will work perfectly well. I think that the experiments that are, have been done on semantic meaning are somewhat silly. And uh, you, you don't believe me, look at IQ tests, look how much of them depend on semantic meanings. <laughs> uh, look at the activities that I just gave you, most of which will work okay in Korean, but not very well in English. Uh, that tells you something about their generalizability. Uh, and also, above all, look at the problem of children who are having language difficulties that are not thinking difficulties, but they're really language difficulties. Uh, and you can see that it's necessary for children to find circuitous, not shortcuts, they're very often long cuts, but actually all learning, all learning is anomalous in the Greek sense. The Greeks anomaly just meant complicated. It just meant um, complex and intricate. And all learning is like that. It's really a matter of degree. So I think even children who have speech disabilities uh, also are learning some form of semantic meaning. So semantic meaning is good for us. Um, the experiments I was going to talk about are the experiments I cut my teeth on when I was doing my master's degree. It turns out that um, our model of the memory is something like three suitcases. You've got a short-term memory that lasts somewhere between three seconds and three minutes. And you know, you take it out, you put it back in, you take it out, you put it back in, you take it out, you put it back in, you take it out again, you put it in the middle size suitcase, which is your sort of your, your mid-range memory. And that supposedly is like three to five days. And if you take it out and repeat it, eventually it will get into a long-term suitcase that just holds everything. Well, it turns out the memory doesn't work that way at all. According to Freck and Lockhart, it's much better to think of levels of processing. And I agree, I agree with this. Um, so for example, you find that the first level of processing tends to be um, quite literal you have a sort of like an after image in your mind, eidetic is what Vygotsky called it. Uh, and you can remember, for example, the exact tone of voice that somebody used to talk to you. And you can certainly remember their exact words for a very short period of time. You then grammatically process it. You realize it was an imperative or it was an interrogative or an exclamative. Oh my God. Uh, and then uh, you've done some grammatical processing on it. It will last a little longer. But the only memory that lasts, the only memory that really stays with us is analysis into word meaning, semantic meaning. And these memories, the memories that of a conversation that was meaningful, a proposal of marriage, a speech at a funeral, uh, these are things that will stick with you, supposedly. Now, to me as a Vygotskyan, 
that is the beginning of wisdom. <laughs> I mean, to me as a Vygotskyan, I think, well, first of all, Vygotsky got there 80 years ago. So we should maybe be reading Vygotsky. Uh, but Vygotsky went much further. Vygotsky did not consider there to be three levels of processing. Uh, and he also didn't see it as a zero-sum equation, which Kreck and Lockhart really do. They say, well, you know, it's, it, takes, it doesn't take very much time to, your literal memory doesn't take very much time. Semantic processing takes a very lot, lot of time. Vygotsky wasn't like that. Vygotsky said, actually, there is structural material. Uh, there's what he calls sort of functional useful material. And then there's semantic material. And he believes that semantic material is why you remember conversations, the gist, but you can't remember the exact words until you see the transcript. And that is semantic memory. It's memory of word meanings where the words themselves have gone to die. The, word, the actual grammar, the actual pronunciation uh, has evaporated, but left a stain on your mind, which we can call semantic memory. Is there, is there anything that you've done uh, as teaching-wise or that you might recommend teaching-wise that is just very much semantic meaning oriented? I think everything I've done is, uh, but let's see. So this week, um, last week classes started and this week I want the kids to teach me rock, paper, scissors. And the way it's gonna work is um, they have to produce, this gets us a little bit back to Kellogg, but you'll like it, it's actually, it's actually three activities. Look, listen, I'm a tree. Now, I'm not a tree, I'm a crow, a crow, a crow, a crow, and this is a cheese. This is a fox. And then you say, the crow meets the cheese. The crow eats the cheese. The crow takes the cheese to the trees. And the fox sees the crow. The fox says, beautiful crow, sing me a song. The crow loses the cheese, the fox gets the cheese. Now, you can see, you can turn this into rock, paper, scissors, right? Crow meets cheese, crow wins, okay? Fox meets crow, fox wins, gets the cheese. The fox eats the cheese and dies because the cheese is three days old and he's got a stomach. Now, you can see that when the child plays the game, you very often find that they turn it into rock, paper, scissors. But then you say, who won? And the child has to explain. And then you say, yeah, you won because you were the fox and that was the crow. Why does the fox win and the crow lose? Ah, the fox fools the crow. The fox cheats the crow and so on. Now you can see that what you're doing is you're taking something that is not based on semantic memory and you're asking the child to semanticize it. And you do that as soon as you ask the child, why? Why? Explain to me why you win, why you get the banana, and your partner doesn't get the banana. And the child has to rely, not just on the memory of who won. I mean, that you can do without semantics. But to explain it requires semantics. Now, as soon as you start thinking in terms of the fox, the crow, and the cheese, you then 
realize that take the Lord of the Rings. You've got, you know, Frodo, Gollum, and I know you're giving me a funny look. It's too old for you. <laughs> and the Ring of Power. <laughs> and you can see that this too is a triangle. Or when the child gets older, the child watches lots of romantic dramas where there's a rich boy and a poor girl and a rich girl. And in South Korea, because this is South Korea, the rich girl is always good and the poor girl is always bad and scheming. And kind of, this is South Korea. That's, in China, it would be the other way around. But, you know, and, and it's, as usual, it's a triangle. And the triangle, when you think about it, will yield a kind of a... Because our novels are written this way. Our novels are written so that a character wins one and loses one, wins one and loses one, wins one and loses one. And very often the networks, the simple networks that our novels build are, are triangles in this way. As soon as you realize that, you, you're surrounded by rock, paper, scissors. You're surrounded by these triangles, love triangles, and power triangles of various kinds. And you can use all of them to produce a game if you want, if you think it's useful, or, which I think is more useful, produce a narrative. And I'm going to suggest that this is why language trumps uh, activity, why in the end, Vygotskians have to say that it's true that activities do things that, that language doesn't do, but dialogue, narrative, activity, form a, a very important triangle. And I think this triangle is more important than the Engstrom triangle, and that uh, people in activity theory have to realize that um, physical activities, activities that are object-related, uh, don't provide the kind of semantic uh, memory in children that we want to, in education. When you ask the child why, why yeah. the fox won, yeah. and the child has to either invent a reason or uh, repeat a reason. What is happening? Well, the child has to remember a reason. We're interested in semantic memory. So the child has to, uh, the ch I don't want the child to invent a reason. I don't want the child to say because the fox is stronger and can kill the crow or anything like that. that that's not interesting. Um, I think what's interesting is for the, the, the children to say, the fox flattered the crow, the fox told the crow to sing, the fox uh, cheated the crow, the fox, the crow was stupid and vain and dropped the cheese. All of those are acceptable. But you notice there isn't a single formula. Different children will have to choose different ways of wording it. Some of them will be closer to Aesop. I think Aesop says something like, the fox flattered the crow and the moral is don't listen to flatterers. It's more interesting if the children will say, you know, the fox, it, that's why the fox has to die in the end, by the way. We, we don't want the, these to be sort of good, bad things. We want the child to be able to say things like, you know, that crow was not so dumb. The crow was just lonely. And maybe the next fox will be good to the crow, you know? What, what, is, what is going on in the, in the uh, act of asking the why question and the child answering the why question? Um, I imagine, because that, that, was, that seemed to me the, the gist what you were getting at, and if that doesn't happen, then we're losing something pretty important. Is that correct? Right, yeah. Well, the child has to put meanings into words. 
uh, the, the child presumably has understood why the fox defeats the crow. Presumably, the child has understood mm -hmm. that. But, uh, but is, that, is, is it the act of verbalizing it? Is it the act of It's the act of verbalizing it. You can't remember the exact words. Then we get a sense of what can the child do on his or her own. And that's actually the purpose of chapter five. And the other reason why chapter five in thinking and speech isn't that useful for teachers is that you have to imagine a world where teachers and parents don't exist in order for the experiment to work. And, you know, there are such words, you know, Boy Scout camp or something like that. And, and actually, when you look at children's literature, the children's literature that we give children, Alice in Wonderland or Huckleberry Finn or, or any of the modern versions, almost all of them, um, weirdly, there are no parents or very few parents. Mm -hmm. and, and so this, this world that Vygotsky imagines in, um, sorry, uh, this world that Vygotsky imagines in chapter five um, is kind of a Gedanken experiment for Vygotsky. It's sort of, let's see what the child does on his own without help. Um, but it, it's also, you know, the core of a lot of our children's literature. Not true of other cultures. When, when you look at, I don't know, did you read Moomin Troll to your kids? I grew up on Moomin Troll. Ah, you don't know what you missed. Ah, Moomin Troll, great stuff. But the interesting thing about Moomin Troll is it's written in the 40s and 50s by militant lesbian feminists in Finland. And um, it's yeah, some, some, Somehow that never got into my bookshelf, I'm not sure, but you could, you could send me a link. Oh, go to Dunkin' Donuts. I mean, the, the, every, the woman trolls everywhere now. Okay. So, uh, but it's all about family. It's all about how uh, families help each other. And, and, you know, and quite unusual for children's literature, not like our children's literature at all. You know, very, very pro-family. The family is the main unit of analysis in, in the woman troll stories. And I think, um, I think you have to recognize that the, one of the problems with progressive education is, and child-centered education is this idea that the child has to do everything by, by himself, by herself, by itself. Uh, and that implies always that the child knows best when <sighs> manifestly not true. <laughs> so, <laughs> is there... Um, hmm, I. I want to be uh, careful with the time here because I have to start teaching in a little bit, and I don't want to take up your whole night. But, so I'm picking. I'm picking my next question carefully. Um, so, what have you come to learn about Vygotsky as a teacher, or as maybe an educational philosopher, uh, for lack of better term, as a result of your uh, like recent transcription work, uh, translation work, the sorry, pedagogical work. What have, what have you learned about Vygotsky, teacher or educational philosopher? I have learned how much I have to learn. Mm. Um, I think that Vygotsky was a remarkable teacher uh, and also a remarkable thinker, but that does not imply that he taught the same way that he thought. Uh, when you look at his notebooks and you look at his lectures, you see two very different people. You see one who is much more like you, Anthony, sort of patient, uh, calm, has a good commanding classroom uh, personality, tends to take things one step at a time, lots of repetition, uh, lots of simplification, 
And then you look in the notebooks and you look in the sketches because to tell you the truth, a lot of the pedagogical manuscripts are incomplete. He's, he's sick, uh, he's busy, he has to go teach uh, at many different schools. Uh, and so, yeah, he's recycling a lot of material. And as he's recycling it, he's repeating it to himself as well as to his students, working it out. But when you look at his notes, you see that he's more like me. There's the bouncing ball and it's very hard to follow and you have to fill in a lot of gaps. And this is why Vygotsky's pedagogical work will keep us busy for the next hundred years. Just figuring out, filling out the gaps, figuring out things like what the hell is the crisis of 17? He says it exists, he, he writes absolutely nothing about it. And a lot of my students, when they show up, they're 17, 18 years old. And so that's the bit I need, that's the bit I want. And it's the bit where Vygotsky has let us work it out for ourselves. And that's another reason why Vygotsky had to be modest and be humble because life is short. And he had to teach. <laughs> okay, Anthony. If you, I have one last quick question. If you had to give some advice to teachers, I guess just some generic, generic advice to modern teachers from a Vygotskyan perspective, what is, what is something you might offer? And it could be as broad or as narrow as you'd like. I think that every parent knows that you don't make the younger child share clothes with the older child. And you certainly don't do the opposite, <laughs> make the older child share the clothes with the younger child. And yet, an awful lot of our education is based on one size fits all. If anybody tells you that there is any particular method or any particular activity, or even any particular approach, one size fits all, Go to Vygotsky. He knows better. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Okay. Let Thanks me... so much. Okay. Thank you, Anthony. Yeah, I enjoyed it, and uh, we'll be in touch. Thank you very, very much. Okay. Take care. Okay.